morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie, one of the pastors here. Excited to have you guys with us this morning. Excited about uh, this series that we uh, jumped into a couple of weeks ago. We're still very much on the front end of this series, a series entitled The Story, where uh, we are taking a look at the, the main acts of uh, redemptive history as we see them in Scripture. So the curtain opens on the story, the act of creation, and then the curtain closes and opens back up on the act of the fall of man, and the curtain closes and opens back up on uh, the act of redemption in Christ, and the curtain closes and opens back up uh, on the act of the restoration of all things in the end. And so uh, as we work through uh, this particular series Uh, I'm becoming more and more keenly aware that there is a great deal at stake. Um, It would be very easy to come in and look at a series like this and go, oh, okay, this is the ABCs of of the Bible. This is Bible 101. Make sure I got all my ducks in a row. Check box, I understand creation. Check box, I understand the fall and redemption and and restoration and so forth and so on. Um, But this really is a dogfight against the cultural belief that the Bible is just a bunch of stories haphazardly thrown together. This is a a dogfight. This series is a dogfight against the cultural belief that the Bible is ultimately a rule book with a bunch of do's and don'ts uh, that are meant to be obeyed in order to find favor with God. This is a a dogfight against the cultural belief that the Bible is ultimately a book of heroes to be emulated. Uh, Do we find rules in the Bible? Absolutely, but the Bible is not ultimately about what you you and I do or don't do. It's ultimately about what God has done. Um, it, do, do we find heroes in the Bible? We we certainly do, but most of them fall on their faces at some point along the way. The Bible is ultimately about one hero that binds the entire story together, and his name is Jesus. And so, there's a great deal at stake. In fact, if you fast forward to Luke chapter 24, Jesus post-resurrection, is sitting with a couple of disciples, and and he begins to unpack for them what the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings say about him. So so Jesus has this hermeneutic, this uh, biblical interpretive lens that he looks at the Old Testament through, and he says, that's about me. And and so we're attempting to unpack that to to help uh, create a more robust understanding of how the Bible is, is one Uh, grand, overarching, redemptive, historical narrative that God has a great imagination, that he is an incredibly artistic author. That's what we're we're after. And this really will change the way you look at God. It'll change the way you view yourself, and it'll change the way that you view the world around you as we step out onto this grand cosmic stage that God has created. And so um, I'm excited, and yet uh, I'm also sobered by by what's on the line here. Uh, we began a couple weeks ago looking at the author because uh, before you read any good book, you should flip over the backside of the dust cover and look at that little about the author snippet because the author's worldview is going to shape that story, right? The author's experiences are gonna shape the way that story unfolds. And so we did that a couple of weeks ago. And if you weren't here two weeks ago when we started this series, I would implore you to go back online and listen to that particular sermon podcast um, because it will shape the way that you view the rest of this series. Um, so, so please go back and do that if you haven't thus far. Last week, after looking at the author, uh, we took a look at Genesis 1, 
the, the grand uh, story, the cosmic level story of creation. God creating the stage on which this divine drama would unfold. Hanging uh, theater lighting from outer space in the form of sun, moon, and stars. Creating the domains of, of earth and sky and water and filling those domains with creatures to inhabit them. And then we took a look at man as the crown and glory of God's creation as his image bearers. And, and so we're, we're now going to, I don't want to give away too much, but, but the camera lens is going to zoom. And, and we're going to see where this story is going this morning as we jump into Genesis chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can go there. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 25, that's where we'll be this morning. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours, church's gift to you, take it. As you're flipping to this morning's passage, uh, let me just throw out a disclaimer. Um, This is daunting to attempt to take this on because what you're going to see, just the first few verses of what we're going to jump into is is this idea of the Sabbath. And then as we move forward in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to see this idea of biblical manhood and womanhood. And the reality is uh, the Bible says much more about those topics than Genesis chapter 2 unpacks for us. There is a, an entire theology of the Sabbath. As you, as you continue forward and you see the Israelites redeemed from enslavement to Egypt, God institutes as, as one of the Ten Commandments a remembering of the Sabbath. It's not just attached to creation, but rather to God's Exodus redemption story, that they're meant to remember that uh, where there once was no rest in Egypt, there's now a rest that God has provided for them. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, we find ultimate Sabbath rest in Christ who will provide us with an eternal Sabbath rest in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a whole theology there. We're not gonna unpack that. Maybe I just did, I don't know. But that's not what we're after, nor are we after unpacking everything that the New Testament authors say about biblical manhood and womanhood, though at times they do speak of the creation story in rooting their arguments. But rather, what we're going after this morning is simply what Genesis chapter two says for the most part, though it is really hard to compartmentalize this, as I'm sure you're finding as we work our way through this story, especially those of you who are in community groups, you're like, we're still in the creation act, and yet... We, we can't help but talk about the fall in our community groups. We can't help but talk about redemption in Christ and what's to come in the last days when Jesus returns. And that's a good thing, but I'm trying my best to come at it as if we're un- unpacking uh, the, the Bible, uh, reading it for the first time, and, and hopefully God awoke, awakening our hearts and giving us eyes to see things that we didn't see before. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. God, help us to see you for who you truly are this morning as you've revealed yourself to us so perfectly in Genesis chapter 2. Help us to see ourselves for who we are in light of who you are and help us to see uh, the world with a a clearer set of of eyes. Um, Rub rub away the the dust and fog from our lenses so that we can see uh, everything the way you intend us to see it. Um, as it pertains to our part in this uh, redemptive historical drama. God, I pray that you would awaken our minds and our hearts uh, to the wonder of Genesis chapter 2, a chapter that many of us have read more times than we can count. And uh, for that purpose, we may come in uh, a little tired. Please awaken us, God. 
Awaken us to a sense of wonder that we may not even have this very moment by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we lift these, lift these things up in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Okay, going back to last week, the six days of creation. God has done all of that work, and we get in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. God's stage is set, and all of the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, so God... God rests on the seventh day. He blesses the seventh day. He makes it holy. What, what does that mean? Why, is, why are these verses in this particular uh, story of Genesis chapters 1 and 2? Well, it doesn't mean that God was tired from his work of creation. Right? God, God doesn't get tired. He's God. We talked about this last week. The creation story is God flexing, but he does so by breathing. God's not tired as he gets to day seven. It also doesn't mean that God withdrew his providential hand from creation. We're told in John 5, 17, Jesus is um, in one of those tricky situations with the Pharisees. He's being persecuted for uh, healing a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees by saying, my father is working until now and I am working. That if God were to withdraw his providential hand the slightest bit at all, all of creation would crumble. The entire stage would fall apart. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is why I think the, the language of God setting the stage is helpful language here. That on the seventh day, God, God looks out and he goes, the lighting is just right. The stage has been set. I'm happy. The, the setting for my divine drama is complete. I'm, I'm ready to unfold this thing. He's pleased with all that he's created. And thus we're told he sets it apart. That's what the word holy means. It means uh, to be set apart, to be different. God says one out of seven is to be different from the rest. Again, I wish I had time to unpack an entire theology of the Sabbath this morning, but that's not uh, the scope of what we're after. If you move into verse four, you begin to see something interesting, right? You would think God set the stage, he's pleased with it, so now we move on, right? We move past creation. And yet that's not what you get in Genesis chapter two. You get what appears to be a second account of creation. And theologians argue back and forth, are there actually two accounts of creation or is there one told from two different vantage points? And I think much of that has to do with the question of whether you're coming at it from a scientific angle or a literary angle. Um, if you're coming at it scientifically, people will say, well, well, that's problematic because there seem to be contradictions in these two stories. And are there two creation accounts? What do we, what do we make of that scientifically? But if you look at it from a literary vantage point, you, you see what God's doing. It makes a lot of sense. In Genesis 1, human beings are one of many created things, right? You, you catch human beings on the back end of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, as one of many things that have been created by God in the beginning. In Genesis 2, the, the camera zooms in. We go from panoramic to the camera zooming in on God's image bearers in God's sanctuary under God's rule and blessing. In other words, going back to last week, as you read Genesis 1, you're meant to ask the question, where's this thing going? 
Where's the camera going to zoom in? Will it zoom in on creatures that inhabit the skies? Are we going Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds here? Are are we zooming in on creatures that uh, inhabit the waters? Is God planning on going Finding Nemo on us? What's he going to do? Will the camera zoom in on the cosmos? Are we going to get some sci-fi sort of thing with UFOs and aliens? What's he he up to? And, And the answer is no. He's going after man. That's where the camera zooms in. Of all the things God created, he zooms in on his image bearers in his sanctuary, namely Eden. Look at verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Okay, here's here's one of the first clues that we get that the lens is zooming in on God and his relationships, uh, relationship with human beings. All throughout Genesis one, God is referred to as Elohim which is the general name for creator God. Here, in in chapter two, verse four, God is referred to as something different than Elohim for the first time in this story. Here in verse four, he's referred to as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Yahweh is God's name in relation to his covenant people. So who is creator God? Answer, he's the covenant God of Israel. The creator God of Genesis one is the covenant making covenant-keeping God of his people. So the question begs to be answered, where are his people? As we look at verse four, you, you can make sense of Elohim without man. God is creator without man. He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. There's no need for a covenant there. But you cannot make sense of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, without man. God is covenant maker and covenant keeper. Verse five tells us that Moses didn't get it wrong Uh, when he refers to God as Yahweh Elohim in verse four. Look at verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Because man's calling is to exercise dominion over the rest of creation, going back to chapter one, God doesn't fully establish the garden, God's place, until he establishes man, God's people. Notice what verse seven communicates about human beings. Man is formed from the dust of the ground. That should humble us. And yet, man is formed by God. God taking the time to shape the clay into a beautiful vessel. Not only that, but we see God breathes into man's nostrils, the breath of life, animating man with his very breath. That's cool. That should reveal to us that we're made with great dignity and purpose. Humility and yet dignity and purpose. So this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God creates man whom he will establish his covenant with. Remember, verse two, the camera zooms in on his image bearers in his sanctuary under his rule. So we have an image bearer now So now we're meant to ask, where's the sanctuary? We're meant to look for a sanctuary. Thus, verse eight, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God's sanctuary is a garden. The word garden comes from the Hebrew root word uh, that means to enclose or protect. So we're talking about a reserved, protected area for God's people to enjoy God and his good creation. The, The reason I say it functions Uh, like a sanctuary, like a temple, is that God is uniquely present there. 
This is the place man meets with God and walks and talks with him. Similar to God's presence in the tabernacle uh, with Israel in the wilderness, God's presence in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, his future eternal sanctuary where we will walk with him and talk with him. If you fast forward the story, it's really interesting. When Solomon builds the temple, the, the walls and doors of the temple are meant to replicate this very garden scene. The walls and doors are adorned with images of fruit, uh, palm trees, open flowers, and cherubim. So, so you have the garden, God's sanctuary. And we're told it's in the east. That in biblical language, the east, where the sun rises, represents life. That's why um, in European cathedrals, the altar is always placed to the east. It's why on the Nile River, the temples of life are always on the, the eastern Bank and the tombs are always on the western side of the river. So man is in God's enclosed sanctuary, the source of abundant life. And lastly, in this verse, we see that this garden is in Eden. The word Eden meaning luxuriance or bliss. So, so we're talking about a land of abundant bliss. This verse flies in the face of, of the argument that says the problem's out there. Man, if my environment was just better, then I'd be a better person. If the culture were just not what it is, I would be a much better person than I am. It's the culture's fault. It's something out there rather than in here. This verse shows us that in a perfect environment, man at his best rebels against God. Verse 9. And out of the ground... The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have three different categories of trees in this, um, this life-giving garden sanctuary. The first being uh, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So, so God's going for both aesthetic and practical. On the aesthetic side, he's created trees that make the truffulas and the Lorax look like a joke looks sad and boring. And, and on the practical side, he, he's created all man needs to have his taste buds dance for joy. That's the scene. Imagine looking out on that scene. Get that picture in your mind. Some of you, you've, you've read a book or you've seen a movie along the way and you have something that's kind of similar to that. For me, it's C.S. Lewis's uh, Paralandra. Gives me a glimpse of what God's doing here. This depiction of this scene is meant to Help us to see the folly of man's rebellion against God. How, how crazy, right? And, and it's so easy for us to go, yeah, Adam and Eve, what a, what a couple of dummies. Man, they really ruined it for the rest of us, didn't they, right? It's really easy to go there and to completely miss that every day when we wake up and roll out of bed, more often than not, we function as the greatest enemies of our own joy. That God has designed the world to work a certain way. He's designed uh, the world to function and us to function in a certain way that maximizes our joy. And we roll out of bed and go, no thanks, I'll take this instead. We're, we're still doing it. It still continues on. And we'll get there as we um, unfold this story that it's not just our first parents, but we're a part of this story now in the wake of the fall. Uh, but I don't want to get uh, too far ahead of ourselves you have every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The second category is the tree of life. Um, some scholars argue that this is symbolic, 
meant to remind man of um, the life that God had given him. Other scholars believe that this, this was a magical tree. It actually was life-giving, that continual eating from this tree would prevent aging and death. And I'm inclined to go with the second, um, not just because I think that uh, we get a little too grown up for our own good, but because if you go on to Genesis chapter 3, as man is banished from the garden, a cherubim is, is put to guard uh, the, the garden with a sword in hand to keep man from getting to the tree of life. I think what God is doing there is he's protecting his fallen image bearers from eternal misery, from living in an eternal state of separation from God and fallenness and brokenness. And then lastly, the third category, you get the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you've read this story before, you're meant to go, uh-oh, I don't like that tree too much. Right, you know the role that tree's gonna play in the story. Don't blame the tree, though. Man's the problem, not the vegetation in this story. The language, the knowledge of good and evil, um, has a particular meaning in the Old Testament. It actually means uh, the ability to determine for oneself what is good and evil, what is helpful and harmful. In other words, it's the tree of judicial autonomy. It's the tree of self-determination, you could say. That man is soon going to be faced with a question. And it's, you ever played the game, Would You Rather? Sometimes that game can get pretty, pretty disturbing. Sometimes it's pretty hilarious. But man is going to be faced with one of the most critical would you rathers in all of human history. We'll see that next week. Would you rather live in a paradise in submission to another, theonomy, or choose your own reign and lose paradise, autonomy? Again, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So very simply, we're meant to see that God's garden sanctuary is a fertile land. No thorns and thistles, no drought, none of that stuff that we see uh, as a part of the curse in the wake of sin, sin's entrance into the story in Genesis 3. We, we also get the benefit of seeing some names that are familiar to us, right? The Tigris. The Euphrates, we've heard of these rivers before. This is not just some made-up fiction novel. The earth is God's theatrical backdrop with real historical people and places. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Um, that language of work and keep, those two Hebrew words, that's priestly Levite language. This is one more piece of evidence that is meant to point to the fact that Eden is a sanctuary. It's God's temple. Adam was to guard the sanctuary of God as the first priest in human history. We'll see he did not do a good job next week. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here you go. These are the covenant stipulations and sanctions. This is God uh, laying out the expectations of his covenant and the blessings and curses associated with obedience and or disobedience. Let me throw out a question for all of us in this room. When you read verses 16 and 17, when you think about those verses, where, where does your mind go? Is it 
man, I wonder what all those other trees were like. They must have been amazing. Or does your mind go to, man, I really wonder what that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was like. Where, where do you lock eyes in the garden as you read verses 16 through 17? Most people haven't given a second thought to all the other trees, which is an indictment on man. It just affirms the rebellious nature of man that God did say, don't eat of this one tree. Yes and amen to that. But he also said, hey, do eat of a thousand other trees, right? In other words, here are a thousand tokens of my love and provision for you. That one tree is to remind you that I'm God, you're not. If you trust me, eternal bliss. If you choose judicial autonomy, self-determination, death. We'll see where the story's gonna go next week. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. All right, most of us have read this so many times that, that we're not shocked, but you're meant to be shocked here, right? You, the scene is Eden, God's perfect, luxurious, utopian garden sanctuary. Trees that make truffula trees look boring, trees that make the taste buds dance, and God looks out and goes, something's missing. You're meant to be shocked. Ladies, that should make you feel really good about your unique design and purpose when you read that verse. God created man and determined that man needed help. The Hebrew word, we've talked about this before for helper is, is actually used in the scriptures um, to describe God in relation to us at times. That God as our helper doesn't diminish his dignity. It doesn't diminish his value. The same is true for women. It's a military term, oftentimes meaning reinforcements are on the way. It's the language of a strong helper. It's not the language of my kids are gonna help me make cookies this afternoon, which is just kind of a pat on the head. Like, I know you're gonna screw up the whole kitchen, baby, but you're really helping daddy here. That's not what God's saying when he uses the language of helper. Richard Pratt says this. He says, God created Eve to make it possible for the human race to fulfill the task originally given to Adam. Ladies, you have a unique and critical purpose to play in this redemptive narrative. God's design is to use your femininity in redemptive ways that are unique. That's part of what this chapter of the creation story is about. Going back to last week, as we see God creating human beings, we get to see both man and woman created in the image of God. So chapter one is God showing us how men and women are alike as uh, the lens uh, zooms in on chapter two, we now get to see how men and women are different, how we interact with one another in this divine, redemptive, historical drama. Let me just throw out a couple of ways that we see that in chapter two, the differences between men and women. Without reading another verse, we know that the man is created first. Adam is on the scene. Eve has not yet arrived. One, one good question theologically to ask is, why didn't God create them at the same time? I mean, if he's trying to make the case that both are equal in dignity, value, and worth as image bearers, why not create them at the same time? Wouldn't that make a really good solidified argument there? But the reality is, God's already said that. There's no stronger way to say that you're equal in dignity, in value, than to say you both bear my image. God doesn't have to to reiterate that again in chapter two. That's the greatest argument he could make for equality. 
among his image bearers, both men and women alike. Now, as the camera zooms in, again, we're meant to see how men and women are meant to interact with one another. The fact that God created man first doesn't make man superior, but it does make him responsible in a very unique way. We'll see that in very concrete ways as we continue on through chapter two. Also, without reading another verse, we know that the man is given the moral expectations of the covenant. Again, going back to verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We get no indication, no account that God says these same words to Eve after she was created, which is why many scholars agree that Adam was entrusted with passing on God's teaching to Eve. Is there any other evidence to support that interpretation? I think so. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, when the covenant is broken in chapter three by both Adam and Eve uh, alike, though Eve eats the forbidden fruit first, God comes to Adam first in the garden. Why go to Adam first when Eve was historically the first image bearer to break the covenant, to sin against God? I think the most sensible explanation would be that Adam was given the the primary responsibility of morally leading his family. Adam fails to do so, and so God seeks him out. Men, you're primarily responsible for leading your family, especially as it pertains to pointing them to Jesus and leveraging them for the glory of God. And keep in mind that this complementarian relationship between man and woman is the way God intended things to be before sin entered the world. God's not responding to the fallenness of man here. That's not, that's not what God is after. This is in God's perfect utopian garden sanctuary of Eden. That sinless, loving, strong moral leadership on Adam's part is what God's designed. Sinless, loving, joyful support of his leadership on Eve's part. That's the way God designed it to be pre-fall. Let's continue on, verses 19 and 20. Now, out of the ground, my favorite part of chapter two. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, God doesn't look out on his garden sanctuary, determine Adam needs a helper, and immediately create Eve, uh, bringing her into existence by his very word. Rather, he he allows Adam to go through this uh, animal naming ceremony of sorts. God objectively knows that Adam is alone. You see what he's doing here? He's providing Adam with the opportunity to subjectively feel lonely. It's fascinating. You can just picture Adam sizing up every creature as he's trying to determine an appropriate name for it. You shall be called hippopotamus. You are not attractive at all. You shall be called crocodile. I'm not making out with you. You you know, and just kind of like the story goes on and and you you get the sense that with each animal named, you know, Adam experiences this, this felt loneliness, a growing sense that something's missing. God's response Time to put the surgical gloves on and get to work. Let's do this thing. And so he moves on into verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So get this picture in your mind. Adam's super bummed out. He's, man, I'm, you know, something's missing here. This is my supporting cast. 
hippos and crocodiles. Come on, we got to do better than that. And so God causes him to fall you know, into a deep sleep. And uh, he takes a rib from Adam's side and uses it to form the woman, which I think is fascinating. That Maybe this is pressing it a little too much. I don't know. But um, many scholars argue that in taking the first woman from the man's side, God is beautifully illustrating partnership. That woman belongs beside man, not behind him as chauvinists believe and not in front of him as feminists argue. That woman is man's perfect complement. God forms the woman from, from Adam's side and she's more glorious than anything we've seen in the garden thus far, apart from the very author of everything. And you just get this, this uh, uh, picture of God saying to Eve, this is how I dream it up. Okay, you go hide behind that tree. All right, this, this is gonna be good. Right? And he wakes Adam up and he says, I got one more creature for you to name. Let me know what you think. My, I immediately go to a Christmas story. Right? Ralphie's opened up all of his presents and his dad's just kind of sitting back with this grin. And he goes, hey, what, what's that over there you know, behind that desk? Go, go, go check it out. You know, and Ralphie goes over, wide-eyed. You know, he's so excited. He, he opens it up. And it's his official Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range model air, air rifle with a compass in the stock. Right? That's Eve. That's Eve. Adam sees her, and all of a sudden, he's Walt Whitman. He's T.S. Eliot. He just breaks out into poetic recital on the spot. He cannot help himself. These are, these are the first recorded words of any human being in the Bible. Verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, because she was taken out of man. Right? She, she's not a burden to Adam. She's not a rival threatening his opportunity to be the sole image bearer in this story. She's a blessing. She says equal, and thus he declares bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and yet he's given the unique responsibility of naming her a call to headship, a call to lead. Eve is God's plan for Adam. Woman is God's plan for man. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That in Genesis 2, God establishes the doctrine of covenant marriage between his image bearers. It, it, again, it amazes me that God establishes both the institutions of marriage and the Sabbath before the fall ever comes into play. It, it wasn't a reaction to the fall of man. He created in the midst of the pure bliss of Eden. Well, think about this. There's no sin in the story yet. And, and yet Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians 5 that the marriage covenant between a man and a woman is a, greater, is a shadow of the greater reality of the covenant between Jesus and his bride, how Jesus feels about the church. God creates that covenant before sin enters the world. This verse is also where we get the language of leaving and cleaving. That There's something good about getting out from under mom and dad's roof and starting a life with someone. There's something good about the two becoming one flesh in covenant marriage, which is both a positional and a practical thing, that language of the two becoming one. When you get married, on the day of your wedding, you're declared one flesh, positionally. And then for the rest of your life, you practically become what you've been declared to be, which is no easy task. It's the same thing as uh, what it means to be a Christian. That the day you became a Christian, whether you know when that day was or not, positionally, you were declared righteous in Christ. You were justified. 
Practically, now for the rest of your life, you get to become what you've been declared to be. You get to grow in righteousness, which is hard. Marriage as God intended it is two people giving themselves to one another, fighting in a dogfight, fusing their lives together for the glory of God. It's man loving his wife by taking responsibility for making the marriage, for making the family a platform for his glory. And it's woman loving her husband by helping him in that glorious task. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Nothing to hide. Nothing to be embarrassed about. No barriers to intimacy. See, now, now verses 1 through 3 make a whole lot more sense. Right? Not only do we see God's completion of the cosmos at large, along with the entire earth and all of its domains, we zoom in on, on a perfect utopian garden sanctuary, God's place inhabited by sinless image bearers, God's people in glad submission to him as their covenant creator, God's rule and blessing. The setting of God's divine drama is declared complete. He's pleased with all that he's created. Doesn't matter whether you're looking at creation uh, from a panoramic view, Genesis 1, or through a zoom lens. It's perfect. If we were reading this story for the first time ever, we'd be on the edge of our seats right now. What's going to happen next? Man, I'm glad I went to the restroom before the movie began. What about that tree that God said not to eat from? That tree makes me really nervous. Without reading another verse, we, most of us know how the story's going to go. Simply put, and excuse my bad grammar, but this ain't Eden. Right? When you look out on the world that we live in, it's not a perfect utopian land of bliss. It's just not. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how the story comes unraveled. We're going we're to see why the world is not as it should be. And we'll encounter God's first recorded promise of a hero who will come to set all things right, who will usher us into a new Eden, which won't be a garden sanctuary, but, but rather a glorious city sanctuary. Don't worry, there's a lot of greenery that will be there. God's place where God's people get to enjoy his rule and blessing forever. If you're a Christian, in a moment we're going to take communion. This meal is for you. In doing so, we remember the hero who has come to set all things right. right. If you're a Christian, you know who the hero is. His name is Jesus. He lived the life that you could never live. He died the death that you deserve to die. Your sins were put upon him and he was punished in your place. He rose from the dead, conquering your great enemies of sin and death. As we take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing Jesus' broken body and the cup representing his shed blood, let's express our deep gratitude to God for making a way for us to enjoy him forever in the new Eden. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.